Hi everyone, my name is Jasper Zielenberg. I'm the founder of Retailization and this is the second podcast in the series Return on Inventory that I'm driving together with Dr. Ellen Barnard, who is with me today. Ellen is the founder of Goldred Research Labs, is a company that helps both individuals as well as companies make better decisions faster when it really matters. Hey Ellen. Hi Jasper, hi to the audience. I think today we want to talk about metrics or measurements, the stuff that drives our behavior. We've obviously dealt with how people behave in certain organizations and from my perspective, mostly in the fashion and sporting goods industry. And it's always been very interesting to see how critical the right measures are in order to drive success and also how devastating <laughs> some of the results are when you don't use the right metrics. And this is really what I want to explore a little bit further with Alan. So we're going to talk about what are maybe not so good metrics and what are really good metrics, particularly for supply chains, how compliance also helps us to you know, drive the right results. So not just to have the metrics, but also to measure the compliance to those metrics. And I'm sure we've got a few anecdotes between us that we can share. I'd also love to for the audience to take away a handy tool that will help make the right decisions when it comes to simply making more money, either through investment or expenses or driving throughput from supply chains. So Ellen can probably talk about that a little bit. We've both worked with uh, Dr. Ellie Goldratt. Ellen, a lot more intense and, and for a much longer time than I, but I met him when I was working for a large company in Europe. And this is also what our company is founded on, really on the principles of Dr. Goldratt. So, Ellen, there's a famous statement, tell me how you measure me and I will tell you how I will behave. This is one of the statements that Ellie always quotes in many of his books. I think in all of his books, you can probably find it again. I can tell you lots of stories about how bad KPIs have driven bad behavior. Is there anything that you want to share about that or maybe just about the framework before we go there, about the decision making using metrics? Yeah, I think when we talk about measurements, it's useful to have what does good look like. And for me, what does good look like should three criteria. So these are the criteria that you could apply uh, to evaluate whether your measurement system as a system, because it's not just one metric, it's a combination of metrics. Right. Does your measurement system provide you with the information that you need in order to manage your system? So the three criteria is as follows. The first one is, does it accurately capture the status of the system? Is it accurately telling me whether I'm okay or not? Right. Now, as soon as you say that, you have to be aware that metrics can have errors in them, can cause mistakes. How can a measurement cause a mistake? Think about a measurement that tells you you're okay when you're not. That's a type one mm-hmm. error, right? It's kind of a false positive, right? Yes. You think you're okay when you're not. The second type of error, type two error, is it tells you you're not okay when in fact you are. So my challenge to all the listeners out there is to make a list of all the metrics that's supposed to tell them if they're okay or not and see if it can ever happen that that metric can cause one of these errors. I'll give you a simple example at a very high level, at a company level, we look at profitability as a way of checking if we're okay or not, right? We have some kind of threshold. If we're above that threshold, we're green. If we're below the threshold, we're red. So in a specific period, it shows us that we were profitable. We think, is that great? Yes, of course, it's great to be profitable. But why were we profitable? And in very much 
as in common with management accounting systems, if in a specific period you increased your inventory levels, you can claim a positive cost recovery and that will artificially inflate your profits. But in the next period, you'd have to give those profits back when you actually sell the inventory. So profitability by itself doesn't meet that criteria because it can cause both type one and type two errors. It can tell you right. when you're okay when in fact you're not, and it can tell you you're not okay when in fact you are. So that's criteria number one, is your metrics telling you accurately and timely if you're okay or not. Second criteria, does it tell you accurately and timely why you are not okay? And the most common thing is, for example, if my profitability is not good, is it a demand problem or is it a supply problem? So I need to know what is causing, what is likely causing that status. And again, there's two types of errors that that type of metric can have. The one is, it tells me something is a cause when it wasn't or when it wasn't a significant cause of the performance gap. And the second thing is, it doesn't tell me that something was a cause when in fact it was. So again, yeah. thinking about your measurements, thinking about your stock levels, for example, if your stocks are in the red, that tells me, should tell me if I'm okay or not. Clearly red means not okay. I'm running very, very low in my stock levels very, very low. Can you instantly tell whether it's a demand problem? So the demand has gone up way more than what we forecasted, or is it a supply problem? We just don't get the supply in. Correct. Make sure your measurement system also can meet that second criteria that it gives you very likely what are the main causes for the status. Yeah. And yeah. The, the last criteria, the third criteria is, is it incentivizing the desired behaviors? Is it incentivizing the parts to do what's good for the whole? And I think that's an important thing because it means that there's a responsibility on us as leadership to first think, how do we want the parts to behave? Whether that part belongs to us or not, whether the upstream or downstream operations is part of our company or group or not, how do we want them to behave? And is the measurements incentivizing that desired behavior? Or again, the two mistakes, it's causing the part to do what's bad for the system. Or second mistake, it's not causing them to do what's good for the system. Like we have a very common one within business is we want to present the best possible view of ourselves to our investors. And the way that we do that is through showing a very high return on investment. So if at the end of the period, we show a very high return on investment, but the way that we do it is by running our inventories very, very low, mm. that is driving the wrong behavior because the start of the new period will have nothing to sell. Yeah, yeah. So, and your example about having too much stock or too little stock when it's in the red, the same, of course, goes with way too much stock. It should be in the green, but it's in the dark green. Or the blue sky. Yeah, the sweeping decision could be we need less stock, but if it means that you're running low on all your fast movers, but you've got way too much of all your slow and non-moving merchandise, then cutting stock may not be the best decision to do. So yeah. that second one on the why is absolutely critical. And I think just looking at projecting on my past, I think very often we've had fantastic dashboarding and all kinds of balanced scorecards, etc. But the why was often not answered. I think the last comment on 
Criteria number three, mm-hmm. which is, is it driving the desired behavior? Really good metrics, often ratios. Yes. What should be in the ratio? It should contain all the elements that are under the control of that group that you're measuring, and it contains the trade-off. So for example, if I'm measuring productivity of a department, there's three elements that they have control over. There's the throughput element, mm-hmm. which is, are they doing the work to meet the demand that's placed on them? So we count the amount of work that they do. And there's an upper threshold to that as they, your department is coping with all the work. There's no backlog, right? right. That's the one element. The second element is the quality element. Are you, yes, you're doing the work, but are you doing it in a way that meets the criteria of your customers? Are you supplying it within the desirable lead time, with the desired accuracy? Are you not making mistakes and defects, et cetera? And then the third one is the total cost of providing that quality throughput service. Now, when I measure each of those in isolation, it can cause local optimization, right? right? If I measure cost too much, it can cause people to reduce cost to the extent that it starts negatively affecting quality of throughput. But that's the easiest one, right? It's always easy to come up with a project that reduces cost because it's quantifiable and it will be signed off in minutes. It also counts for the others. If I focus too much on quality, people can end up spending too much on quality, right? If I focus too much on fruit, they'll do whatever it takes. So as a ratio, that's what we need. We need a ratio that says quality throughput, quality times throughput over operating expenses. That's a great measure for productivity because it teaches people how to play the game. It says your first priority should be to meet the throughput, meet the demand that the system is placing on your department, whether your department is placing orders, right? on your suppliers or making shipments to the retailers, are you meeting the demand that's placed on you? If you're not, how can I go faster until I can meet the demand? The quality part is, am I doing it within the levels of criteria that yep, my customers yep. judge me at? In the right time or, or, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then the last part is the operating expenses part, right? Is, is it costing me less or more than what I'm generating in quality through? Yep. So that ratio... You can apply at a local level, of course, at a higher level, which is something that you you can talk about now, is at a higher level, there's also a ratio, which is measuring your return on investment, right? What are those three elements that govern your in return on investment? You have to measure that as a ratio and not as one by one, else it will drive undesirable behaviors. Yeah. And I think you had a great way of measuring the three components that I always see in in Ellie's books as well. The T for throughput, uh, OE for operating expenses, and then I for, well, in our case, inventory. But of course, that's the biggest investment, particularly for retailers. And I see a lot of focus on cost, obviously, because if OE comes down, then ROI will go up. But of course, it's all about the dynamics between those three throughput, operating expenses and investment. And any change within an organization doesn't only affect the cost. Shipping daily, for example, instead of weekly is a great exercise to drive up the cost. But what does it really do? Are you able to drive your inventory down to the extent where the delta on I is much bigger than the delta in the operating expenses? Then I would say, fantastic, well done, ROI goes up. And if the throughput goes up simply because product is available, because you're replenishing every day the stuff that you sold the day before, 
then your conversion and therefore your throughput uh, will also go up. But you had something that was, I think, more, because that's quite obvious. Eh? TI and OE is always a very easy picture to paint, although it does bring together the different elements, which I think is always helpful. You talked about the rate when last we spoke, and maybe you can do that also yes. for the listeners, because I think it's really helpful. Yeah, so let's just define what we mean by throughput operating expenses and investment, right? So throughput, which as a formula is measured as your sales revenue minus your total variable cost. So that gives you what traditionally called gross margin or in theory of constraints, it's called throughput. But the definition of throughput is it's a rate at which the system is making money through sales. Right. Right. We only report throughput, not when we've produced something, but when we've actually sold it. Generating cash, correct. Sell it, yeah. right? We've generated cash. How much cash did we generate? It's a difference between our selling price and the total variable cost of that item. That's how much money we've made. Yeah. The rate at which we are making money, it's a rate. How much throughput that we deliver the last day, the last week, the last month, the last year. So that's T, the rate at which you're making money. Operating expenses is the rate at which you are spending money. Yeah. And you are being productive and profitable if the rate at which you are spending money is less than the rate at which you are making money. Sounds obvious, but people get it wrong. Yeah, yeah. So that's the OE component. So operating expenses, but practically it's the rate at which you are spending money. The I part, which is at the bottom that stands for investment, but like you said, for especially retailers and distributors, the biggest portion of that investment is really inventory. I is the rate at which I'm investing money. Yes. So I'm comparing essentially the rate at which I'm making money versus the rate at which I'm spending. That tells me if I'm creating a surplus or not. But I don't know in isolation, is $2 million profit, is that good? I need to divide it by the rate at which I'm investing money. So if it requires an investment of $1 million, that's a return investment of two, two to one, right? Right. If it requires an investment of only 200,000, that's a return investment of 10x. I'm getting 2 million for every 200,000. So because it's a ratio, as soon as a, a part starts local optimizing, the ratio is punishing them. Whereas if I was measuring it only in isolation, they might never get punished if they local optimize one of those three factors at the extent of the others. In the same way as that measurement of productivity, quality times throughput over operating expenses is also a ratio. And as soon as you local optimize one of those, you get punished by the, by the ratio. And I think it's great to have the ROI calculator with just the throughput minus the operating expenses. You take that and you divide it by your investment. And if you then make it really concrete, you know, any project within an organization, of course, is driven to make more money more quickly. And that can be done by spending less, which is why it's always easier to come with a cost-saving suggestion. But concretely, I remember working for a company where we decided to trial shipping on a Saturday morning to all the top retail outlets. Many people thought it was ridiculous because we needed to spend significantly more money, especially in the Netherlands where you have tax on fuel and tax on people that work on a Saturday. You have to have two people opening the store because there's a delivery coming and there's all kinds of rules again. So the cost was uh, easy to calculate and it would simply be a lot more than what we were spending at the time. The question was, of course, are we going to make more? 
And are we going to make relatively more than what we're spending? So what we decided is to put a virtual jar on a table and say, okay, we know exactly what we're going to spend for the next, let's say, month or so. I can't remember exactly the window of time, but it was a, a number of Saturdays. And then we compared for these locations the performance over the number of weeks and see if the contribution of those places actually went up relative to the total. And the interesting thing was that within a month, we saw that not only was the jar not empty, which is what everybody expected, at least the cynics uh, around us, but we needed another jar. You know, there was much more money coming in uh, from those places. And that was Obviously, because the Saturday contributed in this sometime something between 60 and 80 percent of the week. So the one day to get it right in terms of inventory was the Saturday. And it was a good lesson for me as well. Although I believed in the outcome, I never expected this to be so incredibly positive. So I think anything you change in a company, you should really measure all three components in a small scale before you decide to all, yeah. you know, go all in um, with a change. Yeah. So I, I think that to the listeners might be their first part of homework that they can take from this, right? Is to list all the measurements, Yeah. have a workshop, bring your team in yeah. and say, we got a kind of an audit to check. Yeah. Does our measurements meet these three criteria? Is it accurately telling us we're okay or not? Or yeah. one, are we okay? Yes or no? Yeah. And the second one was? Second one, why are we not okay or okay? Why? And last one is, is it driving the right behaviors? And they, I think the last part to mention that I see as a major gap in most organizations. Imagine you have a situation where your performance is not according to your expectation, right? right. You're not meeting the expectation. The first thing I want to know is, is it because the policies that we have in place are suboptimal? <laughs> or is it because we actually have quite optimized policies, they best practices, but people are not always complying to them. And what I find in organizations are very few organizations are measuring compliance. So right. as a result, they never know whether their suboptimal performance is it because of non-compliance or because of suboptimum? Because policies of the rules. rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you should do that in a sequence. You should first see if you are sticking to the rules and then see if you need to change those rules. Because before you change the rules, let's first see, you know, maybe maybe there's simply no compliance. But there's, I think, a kind of a deeper element, which is what should be the primary measurements right. of every part of the system. And my encouragement is, yes, you should measure the performance of that part. But that's not what should be driving behavior. What should be driving behavior is compliance to the policies that we've set. That should be your primary measurement is, are you following the rules? And every time you didn't follow a rule, did you have a good reason? And how can we use those good reasons to check, should there be a rule to break the rule? Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. Is there a rule or a guideline? Yeah. So I think that's, it's a major gap that we see as people are not measuring compliance. They're only measuring performance and then they are shocked that people don't follow the rules. Yeah, yeah. it's like uh, not stopping in front of a red traffic light in Johannesburg for all the good reasons. Yeah. <laughs> and in that case, it's a guideline. But of course, when you're doing that in Amsterdam, it's uh, definitely a rule because of all the cyclists that are around and don't see it as a guideline. Maybe we can take a few of the metrics and see how they stack up against these criteria. Measurements that are commonly used. So I'll, I'll start with availability. Great. On-shelf availability, OSA. So I walk into a retailer or distributor 
And I say, do you measure availability or on-shelf availability? They say, absolutely. <laughs> I say, what is your current number? And they say, 95%, even better. 5%. Yeah. And you say, wow. So let's look at that. That's supposed to be a measurement that tells us if we're okay or not. Yeah. And the question, does it? Well, it depends. It depends on what 5% or 10% we don't have availability, right? Yeah. And normally, if you think about it just logically, you would tend to be out of stock of the items that are selling the most. So for me to turn that into a useful measurement, I have to supplement it with something that I call sales at risk that says what we are going to be doing is every time you're out of stock, we will multiply the number of hours or the number of days that you're out of stock by the gross margin of that product, the rate at which that product makes you money when you have stock. The rate, right? So not the total, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not the total gross margin or the total throughput, but the total gross margin when you have stock, Yeah. right? So I multiply those two numbers together, the number of hours or days that I was out of stock multiplied by the the gross margin when I have stock and I get a sales at risk. This is how much sales I've put at risk by being out of stock. So now suddenly I have a a way of checking. Is my availability good or bad? Yes. Is I can check my unavailability is, is 5%, but the sales I'm putting at risk might be only 1%. Yeah, or it might be 50 or it might be 50, Yeah. right? So as soon as you ask this question, can this measurement, is it actually telling us if we're okay or not? And let you and your team think about that. Think about cases where it's telling you you're okay. It sounds like we're okay, like 95 sounds good, especially if we have a target of 95, but is it actually telling us that our system, what other metric do I need to know that? And sales at risk is one of those metrics that I can add on that immediately tells me, because now I'm looking for inconsistencies. My availability is 95 or my unavailability is 5%, but my sales at risk is 1% or 20% or 50%. Now I know if it's good or bad. And the interesting thing is that people look at rates of sale. Of course, this is the, the weighted availability that you are referring to, in fact, and the opposite not sure how, what you would call that is, is to look at items and you would calculate their so-called rate of sale or an average rate of sale. And in our industry, which is uh, sporting goods and fashion, those rates are typically a lot lower than in the fast moving consumer goods. And, and missing yes. an item, of course, is a lot more damaging than uh, if you are missing one unit of toothpaste or peanut butter. These are items that don't sell that quickly and typically their prices are much higher. So... It's also self-fulfilling because if you then look at a a rate of sale on items that are not always available and you're looking at it for the season and you use that information to make the buying decision for the next season, then you are really not optimizing the next decision. So using that, yeah, I, I would almost call it the real rate of sale is the rate at which you are selling stuff when you have the product rather than the rate at which you're selling stuff over 52 weeks and divide that by 52 that's not necessarily the right rate of sale. So some of these metrics, they may not be necessarily the right one, but they also looked at in terms of averages. And I think looking at those metrics as averages is also very dangerous when every SKU in every location, every single day or sometimes even hour 
um, is an opportunity to generate cash. And I think Ellie had a right. good uh, joke about this. He says, if you look at average, it's a little bit like when somebody's body temperature is 37 degrees. On average, it's okay. But that person may have its head in the oven and the feet in the fridge and doesn't actually feel so okay. And it's a little bit like having too much stock and too little stock. And on average, your stock turn looks okay but you are missing things and you are at risk. So if we take that measurement of availability, we say, okay, so we, we had to add, supplement it with this idea of sales at risk yeah. to be able to judge if really okay or not. But now the next criteria, the next criteria says, why? do we know why it's yeah. okay or not okay? Now for that, at least I need to know two parts. The first part is, is it a compliance issue yeah. or is it a performance issue, Right. So do I have a quick way that says my, my compliance rate to any recommendations our IT system is giving me about what to buy, when to buy, how much to buy, are we always complying to these things? Or is our compliance rate, you know, 90% or 60% or 50% or 20%, which means that we have people that feel the need to constantly second guess our system and our policies and procedures. Right. If that's happening... We have no idea whether our non-performance is as a result of non-compliance or suboptimal policies. So that's the first thing I want to know is whatever policies we have, whatever rules we have, they, I need to measure how well we are complying to those rules, how well our suppliers is complying to our request, yeah, how point. well yeah. our customers are complying to our request. Yeah. If we are confident that it's not a compliance problem, that it's a non-performance problem, then the next question is, well, our unavailability is higher than what we want it to be because we've checked it with the sales at risk is very high. Is it a demand problem or is it a supply problem? Are we selling on average more than what we forecasted? Yes. That would explain why we often have stockouts. The second thing is we're not selling more than what we forecasted, but our supply is less or are taking longer than what we expected when we set those original target stock levels, et cetera. So that to me would be, again, to think about, okay, how do I enhance this metric of availability or unavailability and sales at risk by providing these two secondary measurements that on the one side, I'm measuring compliance. And secondly, I'm measuring whether it's a demand problem or it's a supply problem. Yeah, clear. I have another one. Initial markup, IMU. It's one of those that people chase and have chased for years. I've seen it happen. People looking at the, the highest possible margin between at which you buy items and then the recommended retail price, the ticket price, and yes. the higher the better. And this is also one of those metrics that can easily conflict as well with the system's goal of making money. In, in this case, I have seen just a concrete example, the buyer going in for a deal that was offered to her because she could buy 5,000 t-shirts at a fantastic IMU, initial markup. And at the end of the season, the planner had to mark it all down. They're working for the same department because the stuff wasn't actually needed. It needed to be converted to cash so that we could buy more stuff for the next season. Looking at your you know, the three criteria, which one is missing? Yeah, I think that the first part is, you know, is it good or bad that we can't judge whether it's good or bad just by a number that says, you know, 50% is better than, than 20%. Okay, of course that's true, <laughs> but does it make sense for the system? Yes. Yeah. How do I supplement it? Do I have a way of measuring 
what a profitability is ultimately going to be because that right. initial markup is just that initial thing. Well, but you're what's right. The total- Sorry to interrupt, but if if you have everything else remaining the same, eh? ceteris paribus, they say, then of course 50% is better than 20%. Yeah, as long as I sell it, that's the whole thing. Is is my sell through rate as I expected? So if my standard sell through rate is maybe 80%, I sell 80% of what I initially yeah. purchased. Yeah. But I'm not chasing a higher initial markup number, and suddenly my sell through rate drops to 60%. Yeah. Clearly, yeah. that's not good, right? So it's it's again thinking about what is that additional measurement that I need to bring in that will help me judge if this is good or bad. Probably the rate, right? The sell-through rate is a great enhancement. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm never reporting that by itself. I'm reporting what my initial markup was and I'm reporting what my sell-through rate was. And it's only when I look at the combination of these that I go, yes, we're doing well or not. I could have a massive initial markup, but almost zero sell-through rate. That's clearly bad. It means that we've stepped over that threshold where customers no longer perceive it as valuable. Yeah. If you look at conflicting measurements, of course, that's one that creates conflict between two people working for the same goal. And But there are others. Cost per unit shipped is a great one as well for the logistics teams, because if they are sure it's an indicator, eh? you can always use these metrics as indications to maybe ask more questions, ideally the right ones. If the logistics department is only measured on cost per unit shipped, then they would be shipping maybe once a month pallets to retail locations <laughs> and then hope that what they ship is the best. If you're shipping very granularly every hour, then that's hugely expensive. So is the cost per unit shipped will go through the roof. There will be a point uh, of diminishing return, but somewhere in between. What is the best way to actually make sure that the goal of the local, let's say, department uh, the optimum of this local department is helping to drive the goal of the system as a whole. Because this is when, particularly when organizations grow, they become efficient, they have their own KPIs. But what should people do to actually make sure that there is synergy, uh, synthesis between those departments? I think the mistake there is that we assume that a cost saving in one part automatically translates as a cost saving for the system, Right. So if I can find a way of not paying $5 per unit, but pay $4 per unit, I'm Mm -hmm. saving a dollar, you know, I'm shipping a million of these a month. So I'm expecting that my saving for the company will be a million dollars. But as you mentioned, if in order to get that $1 saving, I now have to place larger orders. Yeah. Further and up. there's a very, <laughs> very good chance that now my lead times will be longer. I'll have to carry more inventory. My sell-through rate will be less. The only way to prevent that local optimization is to start thinking about total cost, right? So if I'm the procurement department, what I should do, at least as a logical check, is I say, listen, I've come up with this idea, right, where I can save $1 per unit. From my perspective, it sounds good. At, you know, we do a million a month, so I think we'll we'll save a million. Let me check with the other departments. Could this change in policy cause their cost to go up or their throughput to go down or their investment or inventory to go up? So at least do a logical check, right? Of course, the ideal way is imagine if you had a digital twin or simulation model Yes. of your whole supply chain, yeah, yeah. where you can put in that change, you can press the play button and say, 
let me see what the total cost impact is. We've just had a recent case with a customer that had a massive redesign in their supply chain from the point of cutting rental cost and labor cost, et cetera. But when we calculated the total cost impact, they assumed that it was going to save them about 40 million a year. And that was correct. At the local part, it would save them 40 million a year. Right. But the total cost for the system was over $80 million. <laughs> so there was actually net $40 million loss if they had proceeded. And we only picked that up with simulations. That's amazing. It's a little bit like asking, am I the best in the team or the best for the team when you are heading up a department? And I think those are great questions to ask. So conflicting measurements. Yeah, I think so you- at least ask upstream and, and downstream. Is the same yes. with your customers, right? We're planning this change. We think yeah. it will save us money and you money. We, we're quite happy to share that saving, but we want to understand before we activate that change, could this cause any form of damage to you? Could it cause your inventories to go up, your cost to go up, et cetera? And the opposite is also true to say, listen, we can offer you emergency shipments, right, via air freight. That is going to cost five times more or three times more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we are willing to do that as long as the benefit is greater than that cost, right? Can yeah. you tell us what would be the benefit if we did offer this, and would it be worthwhile for you to paying a premium for us to offer emergency shipments or to work overtime or, or whatever? So I think always it's amazing. Do that you know, when you speak, I can go back into my career and one of the exactly this topic about different departments having different goals. I remember being desperately in need of T-shirts and I wanted to fly them in. And the logistics department was stuck to a, in this case, a rule. Uh, we saw it more as a guideline that you could not air freight more than a certain ratio compared to the sea freight. So it was always a ratio. And I knew that every T-shirt we got in would have been converted to cash. So I was very hungry for these T-shirts. But coming up against a hard no was just very disappointed, after which I calculated that flying these T-shirts in in business class, when you calculate how many <laughs> units would fit on a chair, would actually still make us money. I didn't make any friends in the logistics team and I didn't get the T-shirts in, but it was just a way for me to sublimate my frustration on not being able to get but the T-shirts in. Bound by rules. Yeah, so, yeah I think that's, a, that's an important thing is that, you know, we briefly talked about making sure that the part is doing what's good for the whole. And uh, I think we all have examples of that. But when you see parts that are not behaving in a way that's good for the system, normally it's because of two reasons. There's a third reason, which are, it's just bad people, right? (laughs) And you are going to get that. You are going to those organizational psychopaths, right? That will, that will harm the system just to look good. But yeah, the but good news the, is that's only about 1% to 2% of the total population <laughs> fall in that category. I've never seen uh, that the really. Rest, yeah. The rest of it are good people that yeah. make bad decisions for good reasons. And, yeah. and normally the good reasons are one, it's just that the wrong measurement. The, they have a measurement that are driving them to do what they often know are bad for the system. But in order to meet the measurement or in order to meet that ratio, like you mentioned, they're doing that. And that's, that's a simple fix. You can immediately change that negative behavior yeah. by changing the measure. Or and maybe by showing it, you know, how the measurement impacts the system as a whole, because nobody wants to exactly. accept these 2% you just mentioned. Nobody yeah. wants to go into their work and ask, how can I ruin the business today? You know? That fits to me more to the second reason, which is so the first reason is they just being measured in the wrong way. Change the measurement and their behavior will change. 
The second one is that they think that they're doing what's best for the system. And the reason why they're getting it wrong is because what's best for the system is actually very counterintuitive from the local perspective. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That actually they have to spend more, more. to yeah. make more, right? I, I remember once we were at a company and we were called in and, you know, the, the manager that was taking us around was so proud they'd won the employee or team of the of the month award for their reaction, right? And it showed that they saved the company $2 million and they got the team of the month award. And we got back into the boardroom and I said, oh, it was so nice to hear this guy. You know, he was clearly very proud of this award that he got. And I just heard this like snickering going around. And I was like, what's going on here? And they all said, listen, it's so stupid. This guy got an award for saving his department $2 million, but yeah. he's costing us $10 million. <laughs> Right? And, and that's one of those things. He did something that he felt was good. The actual system rewarded him. Right. But if he had just taken the time upstream and downstream to say, listen, we're planning this change. We think it will save us two million. Yes. Could this have a negative consequences on you? And can you quantify? Do you don't mm. need to be accurate. Just about, right? Is it because yeah. it cost you more than the two million or less? If it's less, then it's still a good idea. If it's more, then it's clearly a bad idea. It means that we need to investigate a bit more. So just always check the impact of your local decisions or plan changes on the system as a whole. And again, simulation is a great way of quantifying that, you know, especially yeah. in the more tricky cases where small changes can have big impacts or not. Oh, yes. I remember one of our customers wanted to go to a certain promotional chain so they would calculate how many units they would sell in a given window of time when there was a promotion, calculate price elasticity, so many units we will sell more. And it wasn't very successful because the stores were overstocked uh, after the event. And then somebody said, for the next time, let's just increase the replenishment frequency a lot. Let's not guess at how many units we can sell, but simply replenish the next day, which was extremely yes. expensive. Yes. Similar to the example I mentioned earlier, but there too, the results was exactly the same. It was simply a lot more responsive, this whole movement. And during the event, rather than forecast what you know is going to be wrong, simply make the system a little bit more responsive. Maybe take another one that is affecting a lot of people at the moment with supply chain issues mm. is, is lead times, yes. right? And measuring that measurement. Is, Go there. How long is the total lead time, right? And is that good or bad? If my lead time is three weeks, is that good or bad, you know? So clearly... It's bad if my current lead time exceeds the tolerance time of the customers, right? So if the customers are not willing to wait longer than a week to sure, get their product, we yeah. are getting to two weeks and yeah. we're starting not just lose orders, but actual customers. That's clearly bad, yeah, right? Yeah. So if I have a reference point of not what our own target is, but what do customers expect? What's the commitment that we've made? What have we promised customers yeah. and measured against that? That could be a good way of meeting the first criteria. Are we good or bad? We're not meeting their expectations, yes or no. So if it's no, then the question is why? And here I want to give you a kind of a framework that might be useful to say, is this a demand lead time problem or is it a supply lead time problem? What I mean by that is, from the moment that there's been a demand at the store. Mm -hmm. So imagine somebody walks in, they've just bought the last of this product that's on the shelf and now there's no stock, right? The demand lead time is the total time from that event happening 
until the order is placed on the supplier to replenish that item. Now, if I place orders every day, the longest demand lead time would be one day. Correct. But if I place orders once a month, <laughs> then the demand lead times becomes 30 days, right? Yeah. So if I'm trying to understand why my total lead time is so long, is it because I just, I'm not placing orders fast enough? It's almost like, Jasper, from the moment that you feel a symptom, how long does it take you to contact the doctor? <laughs> right? Yeah, you're That's right. the demand yeah. lead time. That's right? the demand lead time. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Immediately when you start feeling ill, you immediately get on the phone. Yeah. There's, there's no delay because of demand lead time. But if yep. it takes you a month and by the time you get there, they go, sorry, we can't help you anymore. <laughs> you should have called so, us before. Yeah, yeah. You should have called us, you know, yeah. two months ago. So that's the first thing is how much, and that's something that very few customers are actually measuring is what is the demand lead time from the moment that there's a demand downstream yeah, yeah, until yeah. you are aware of it or from the moment that you have a demand, Yeah. how long does it take you to inform your supplier about it? The second part is the supply lead time. Yeah, when you actually want to do something moment, about it. Yeah, yeah. From yeah. the moment that you get the demand, yeah. how long does it take you to supply it? And there, that supply lead time is broken up into essentially three categories. I, I call it waiting and backlog, mm -hmm. right? Time in backlog versus time in process. Those are two major components. So if my current supply lead time, if I'm placing an order on my supplier and they quote me 30 days, right? what I want to know is in that 30 days, what is the allowance that they've put in there for backlog? Because clearly I'm not the only one that's placing orders on them, right? So I can't imagine that as soon as I place an order on them, my order is immediately at the front of the queue and I no, will immediately you're going to waiting in backlog, absolutely. Right? Yeah. You have some time waiting in backlog. Yeah. And the second one is as soon as it gets out of backlog, it's now released into the manufacturing facility as a production order or it's released into their warehouse as a distribution order that they need to pack and, and yeah. complete. How long is that lead time? What's interesting, what we found doing a lot of research is that when somebody quotes me 30 days, there's normally an allowance there of about half-half. Yes, yes, right? yes. Which is about half of that time, about two weeks is probably expected to wait in backlog. Of course. And about two weeks is they're going to keep promises. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Now, once I understand that, I can immediately check, right, is the current problem, if it's a supply lead time problem, is it because my backlog has grown to eight weeks? Yeah. Is that the problem? Or is it because my waiting and process, the actual portion that I'm actually making this stuff yeah. or moving the stuff. Manufacturing or picking. Is, yeah. Exactly. And, and that normally tells you that you've got some kind of, if the backlog is growing, you have an internal bottleneck, right? The, the department is doing a good job to not release everything. That's yeah. why there's a big backlog, yeah, right? Yeah. It's they acknowledging that they have a bottleneck and they know that by trying to release too much into the warehouse. No, you're just ruining the just whole system. Yeah. Yeah. Chaos, right? Yeah. So it, it, when I see a good, a big backlog, that's good from two perspectives. One is there's a bigger demand than what we've got capacity. That's a big, that's a good problem to solve. Yes. But it also tells me that there's discipline 
in not releasing everything as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a good thing. The bad thing is there's clearly an operational bottleneck, right? And we have to f- help them find capacity to be able to get rid of that backlog, or at least to reduce the backlog to what is within the tolerance time of a customer, right? And that might be two hours backlog. It might be two weeks, depending on the item and how critical the item is. So I think yeah, that's Yeah, but knowing what to focus on is half the solution, right? So um, yeah. I think in and this that, case, yeah. Yeah. And that again goes back to, is, it, is lead time meeting the criteria for number one? Is it telling me we're okay or not? It's only telling me if we're okay or not if I have a reference point like a customer tolerance time or yes. commitment that I've made and I'm measuring it against that. Yeah. But I, the point that you previously made, which is even more critical here, it's, it's terrible for lead time measurement to only measure average lead time. Correct. Right? Yeah, yeah. I can say, well, my average lead time is 20 days. We commit to 30 days. We better than expected. But what I don't tell you is that sometimes it takes me five days and sometimes it takes days. me 50 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. right? Yeah. So I want to measure both the average and the variability or standard deviation and see how yeah. in control my system is. So that's yeah. a critical part. It's like, am I okay or not? It's not just the absolute number, but the variability that I need to check if I'm okay. And I mean, it's interesting. Right. Yeah, I'm just thinking as you're speaking, because the companies that are currently winning are the companies that have shortened the lead times to become phenomenally responsive. I mentioned it in the previous podcast as well. And also over the last decades, you can see that those who are responsive in their behavior and always shorten the lead time, always won. I find that when I look at the average, lead times have actually increased over the last decades and not decreased. And I think this is also the reason why there is so much overproduction and why consumers can still not find what they're looking for. So I believe that one of the biggest levers to success is really to try and become a lot more responsive, shorten the lead times, reduce the batches. I know it's more expensive, but if we continue to measure this, go back to the metrics in terms of does it increase the rate at which I generate throughput cash? Does it increase or decrease the rate at which I spend money or does it increase the rate at which I invest If we just continue to look at a very simple way of looking at the delta of those three, then hopefully it will become easier and easier to, first of all, make more money and second, to reduce the waste and, of course, get people to work together because I think it's a lot easier there too. You know, dashboards are much easier to produce on data these days than they were 30 years ago. I have kind of an extreme example on the lead time side, why it's so important not to just know whether you're good or, or not, but mm-hmm. why. A recent case, I was working with a government agency and they were very proud when I arrived there to say, you know, they have made this big investment in their IT system. They spent about $10 million dollars. And it allowed them to reduce the cycle time on their bottleneck resource. Something that used to take one hour is now only taking five minutes with this technology. And they were very proud of this, right? Yeah, but it didn't matter. (laughs) Until I asked them, what is the total lead time to provide this service? And they said 30 days. Now you think about that, right? They've invested $10 million dollars to save 55 minutes on something that takes 30 days. Yeah, it doesn't feel very clever. 
No. No. But it, it, it's, it looked very clever because they thought that they had found the bottleneck. Mm. What they didn't realize is that the major cause of the delays is not an operational bottleneck. And we didn't mention it's that. Right in the beginning, we talked well, about metrics. And yeah. uh, hey, you talked about metrics that tell me whether I'm okay or not. And then uh, it's the why am I? Yeah. 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 And, and then That's of course the, the incentive. But if we have all those rights and we start working on fixing the metrics, but it's actually not the, the metrics that matter, <laughs> then right. basically you're still uh, polishing stuff that really is, is making things look good, so but might not change the business. Yeah. So getting back to the lead time measurement is I might be measuring lead time and know if I'm okay or not. I'm meeting customer expectations or my own commitments, but why am I not okay? What's actually causing the delays right. that's avoidable? Is, yeah. it, is it really a bottleneck? Is it a demand lead time problem, supply lead time problem, is it a backlog problem, is it internal queuing problem, etc. That's really, really critical. And I think we've exhausted the window of time that we had. If there's anything else you'd like to share regarding metrics, because I think we can talk for a week also on the anecdotes that we have from the past, then feel free yeah. because I'm certainly inspired. Yeah. I think if we can leave the listeners with that piece of homework is to say, you know, bring your team together let them, first of all, list all the measurements that is being placed on their department. I think that often will be a big shock, is that we have right. way too many measurements, right? Yeah. Yeah. And as a result, we don't know how people are prioritizing. Yeah. We should have a very clear way of saying, this is our primary measurement and these are our secondary measurements. So once you've listed all of them down, share with your team this framework that says, we are judging all these measurements as a measurement system. Here's our three criteria. Is it accurately telling us if we're okay or not? Can it yeah. often cause type one or type two mistakes, right? Telling us we're okay when we're not, or we're not okay when we, in fact we are. Number two criteria. Does it tell us why we're not okay or not, right? Is it prone to one of those type errors? It tells us a reason why we're not okay when, in fact, that's not the main reason, or it misses the yep. main reason, like it's not a bottleneck, it's delays that's causing the big problem or it's a demand lead time problem, it's not a supply lead time problem. And lastly, is it incentivizing the desired behavior? So make a list, ask your team, make a list, first starting with yourself. Do you ever feel pressure to do something that you know is bad for the system in the short term or at least in the long term? What is it? And tell us what measurement are driving you to do that or to feel pressure to do that. And then to look upstream and downstream and say, do you ever find upstream or downstream doing things that are harming you? What is it? And what do you suspect? What measurement could be driving that? If we are not behaving in a way that's good for the system, it's either because we have the wrong measurement or it's because it's very counterintuitive and we need to help educate them to show them that full cost impact. Great, Alan. I think we've given a nice framework. Hopefully people have heard a few examples and looked in the mirror and think, hmm, maybe I should have a look at this because if it will contribute to making the world a better place and making people and companies more money, then that's what we're here to try and inspire. So thanks very much again for the time. I want to thank the listeners for listening. This was episode two of Return on Inventory. Thanks.